I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 1961, the album, An Evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May, the artist. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And my guest this week somehow is Fran Brill. Thank you so much for doing this show. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Jason. Um, I was so thrilled that you not only agreed to do it, but were ready to do it quickly and also picked an album that I absolutely adore. Um, <laughs> so when did you first hear this? Because um, by, by the way, you spoke about it. It sounded like you heard it right when it came out. Well, I actually, I, it came out in 1960, and I don't know that I knew about it then, but okay. uh, when I went off to college, I was aware of this album, and my roommate, well, actually, we, she, there were six of us in a suite at Boston University Fine Arts School, and I just clicked immediately with one of the other gals there. And she also was a Mike Nichols and Elaine May uh, aficionado. Mm -hmm. And the two of us would do riffs on the album. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I just think uh, they were so brilliant and such a terrific example of certainly comedians, but people, actors who do improvisation. And I'm quite sure that this wasn't I, i'm gonna guess that they had done these routines before they mm -hmm. put them on an album don't you think yeah from what i understand they they had you know sort of the same policy that that um second city adopted uh and possibly even quicker which is let's improvise uh actually i think from what i understand they improvised a little backstage and then came up with a almost okay. like a set list from there that's okay. what the way i've heard it it could i could be it, wrong it, but it's definitely that makes somewhat sense great. to me mm -hmm. yeah because it's a little, it's so smooth. But I was also thinking uh, about how really any good comic actor or puppeteer, how the same things apply no matter uh, what the well, venue isn't the right word. I mean, it's it's the two people who have directly opposite objectives. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think what they did was so clear uh, in that first cut, which is the telephone. Mm -hmm. um, you just, you know, you've got a guy who desperately wants his dime back and a protagonist on the other side who uh, cannot get it through to him that he he's well he knows he doesn't want to lose his dime and she doesn't want to give it away and it's just terrific and it you know at the end usually somebody batters down the other mm -hmm. <laughs> but um you know this is this is any great comedy team and um i don't know why it resonated with me to tell you the truth i mean i it's not like i grew up trying to be a comedian i mm -hmm. was rather very serious about acting and um I, you know, in, in college played Lady Anne and Richard III, and I did Shaw, and I did, you know, all of these things. But I always loved, loved, loved laughing. Who doesn't? Mm -hmm. And I loved comedy performers. So I glommed onto these guys. Um, but I'm, I was thinking about even how it, it applied to, Oh, I don't know, Prairie Dawn and Cookie Monster, mm -hmm. in that, you know, his objective <laughs> always was to get to the cookie or to do whatever it was. And Prairie Dawn always wanted to press on with the pageant or saying the letter of the day. And when you have two characters like that who are very, very strong mm -hmm. and really adamant, it, it's very humorous. I mean, come on, it's 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 hard to resist. I mean, if, if it's something that appeals not only to, you know, uh, children who are barely able to form anything, right. and then adults who, you know, like us, you know, feel like we're sophisticated when we laugh at something like Mike Nichols and Elaine May, then, you know, you're right. It's a dynamic that is unavoidable. Um, right. You know, it's interesting uh, that, uh, I mean, obviously you would bring that up for those who do not know. You are the voice of Prairie Dawn on Sesame Street. You, can, I, can I just correct you for a second? Please, yes. This is the puppeteer's lament. I played the character. Uh-huh. If you say was the voice of, it That's makes fair. it sound that is like... That's fair. No, everybody does it, but mm -hmm. really and truly, 
you the puppeteers do their own manipulation and yes. their own voices so play perform the character of is our very very favorite way to describe ourselves that that is that is fair as somebody who as a child really wanted to be a puppeteer i feel bad about that yes oh, she, she, yes did really? oh yeah oh i mean gosh. that's that's why i'm so in love with 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 puppets and and uh, but also you know here's the thing is uh it's it's then turned into a love of voice work so then my brain obviously uh switches gears on accident so yes yeah, you I performed prairie dawn you get it but I, I i do understand that it's you know it's it is a specific it's a specific uh, very complicated skill because you're literally putting not only your voice but your own body into another body, and uh, syncing those two yeah. up is not as simple as it is meant. That's to look. why it takes <laughs> it takes one person to do it because it really would be very difficult to have one person puppeteer and somebody mm -hmm. off camera. Uh, it's been done under sure. duress for various <laughs> ex extreme reasons, but nobody comes out smelling well. You know? <laughs> when, whenever I've heard that somebody's doing it that way, I think a why and b that's insane to me. That just doesn't it doesn't make sense, and it's not uh, well. It's not again not a full bodied performance in the same way. Right. Um, it Those has to do mostly like if what, what if you play two characters and they're talking to each other. Right. Then there's a need for the puppeteer to lip sync to your track, mm -hmm. uh, let's say. But it's it's really messy and difficult to do well. So one prefers not to do that. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so I did Prairie Dawn, who uh, you know started out as a very very. But this is these were my instructions from Jim after you know being a muppet for like 6 months and having never puppeteered you know before and he said we'd like you to to create a character who would be you know very sweet uh docile you know the, the quintessential little girl at least that's what they were in Jim Henson's mind and um because before then all the guys would do the female characters cuz mm. there were no female muppet uh performers uh, until I came along. So, and I thought the guys were hysterical uh -huh. doing female voices, but you know, women's lib and all that stuff was uh, beginning to uh, be very loud in the uh, cosmos and um, the producers felt they really needed to hire a bona fide female. So I was at the right place at the right time. And, so you kind um, of walked into felt Shakespeare where all the men were playing all the parts. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I never even thought about it that way. But you're right. In the oldie timey days, all those roles uh, of the females were played by adolescent boys, or you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. What was your? I, I mean, I, I think all of the you know all the different properties that are under the Jim Henson balloon or have been over time, Sesame Street and the Muppets. Uh, every I think I feel like every performer is associated with having. Uh, either learned or already knowing uh, a ton of improv skills because that's what people talk to when they meet a Muppet for the first time. Uh, the reason they start bawling their eyes out is because they are talking to a Muppet. They're, they're, they're not, there's no person involved seemingly because of the intense acting skill and the intense improv skill being able to improvise in one of those Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, but I'm sure you've probably heard this before and it is an interesting phenomenon, but even with adults, if you've got a puppet on your hand, mm -hmm. they start talking to that puppet. They do not look back at Fran Brill anymore. They they talk to the puppet. It's a it's a force of nature of some uh -huh. kind. But children, adults, they all kind of fall in line and start talking to the puppet. Once in a while, you'll see a child who's kind of comprehending this in, in real time, looking you know, back to your eyes, and then they swing back to the puppet because the puppet is a stronger uh, source. Mm. It's, it's weird. I mean, it draws, I guess, not only the eye, but all the attention. The funny thing is, though, is, and just, I guess we could just do one of the tech things just so that people know you're not a ventriloquist, you're not doing ventriloquism while you're there. No, you're just full no, on talking. Ventriloquism is much <laughs> too hard. <laughs> but you're talking and, and people still, still their instinct is to look at the big, fluffy, colorful thing that's on your hand. That's, and I, that's it's so fascinating. Um, but yeah, but you, when, when you get that thing on your arm and that character is very real to you, 
Of course you can improvise in that because the puppet takes over. Mm -hmm. I think I think we as the performer have very little to do with it. Um, it it's like what Frank always says. If somebody says, you know, do the voice of it's it's not it's not that it's really doing the character because mm -hmm. you don't think of, oh, I've now got to do Zoe's voice or mm -hmm. Cookie Monster's voice. It's you you the voice comes from the puppet and somehow it, it you challenge that by seeing what the puppet looks like and you know i don't know to me this is so simple mm -hmm. but probably to other people they think you know i've sat in a corner all day thinking of <laughs> a voice for this character but i just look at a puppet and a and a voice will come to me which is why when I used to audition for cartoon voices or something, I would say, do you have a drawing, a picture, anything of the character? Mm -hmm. Because if somebody just says, well, it's a worm, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just if, show me a picture and I'll come up with a voice or two or three maybe. But that's that helps me tremendously. I mean, it's not unlike if, uh, you know, the actors who say they can't get into it until they finally have their wardrobe. And once they've got the wardrobe, yes. they're like, this the is shoes. it. I live the here. Shoes. The shoes. Yes, it's a big one. That the shoes are what really finally gives you who this person is. It makes such a difference. Yeah. But you're right. The costume, the makeup, the hair, that helps a whole lot. Absolutely. As a human. I would love to know. Obviously, there's no way to know. I would love to know how... Th what these characters come from in terms of Nichols and May's relationship, other than wouldn't this be a funny combination? It's just the way that they can play these varying, um, you know, types of relationships off of one another that is so impressive, I think. And to do well, it I, seemingly. I think they were both just very good actors. Yeah. And, you know, maybe without even labeling it, they knew that the comedy tension happens when somebody wants something very strongly and the other person wants to resist that with equal strength. Um, but I, I also enjoyed hearing Elaine May uh, try to be three different persnickety phone operators. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and it sounds to me as if she preceded that sort of nasal hello uh, thing before Lily Tomlin came For up sure. with that, you know, or maybe Lily Tomlin ripped her, ripped her off. No offense, steal from the best. Mm -hmm. But they both sort of came up with this hello uh, <laughs> kind of voice, yeah. which I find was sort of, um, well, anyway, they were really good. Um and can I just add one more thing? Oh, yeah, please. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the play Hurley Burley. I'm not. I apologize. Okay. Uh, it was written by, oh, my gosh, very famous American uh, playwright, and I can't think of his name right now. I should have looked it up. But anyway, it was done on Broadway, mm -hmm. and uh, I think it, then it was revived on Broadway. But this is classic Michael Nichols. Uh, directing, mm -hmm. he had sort of this this scene between a man and a woman, and he was desperately trying to get this girl to to take off her clothes, mm -hmm. and um, she was trying really hard to resist him, and it was very amusing to watch because while she's saying, "Oh no, I can't, I really shouldn't," and you know, doing all of this, she's literally taking off her boots. <laughs> and I said, oh, my gosh, that is so great. That is so perfect. Isn't that what human beings do? They're, they very often in, in situations are saying one thing but meaning the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. I just thought that was one of the most brilliant pieces of directing I'd ever seen. This was, you know, a while ago. But mm -hmm. I think he was all about that. That's how you really yeah. cut to what what is the character really feeling as opposed to what are the words coming out of the character's mouth uh the play was written by david rabe by the way i yes. looked it up for you there we are the careers after this that both mike nichols and elaine may had one being more visible the other being even though one's behind camera he he, he was more recognized for his talent than maybe she has been for hers 
Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, I'm not surprised by, but I do not find to be fair. But it is interesting to see them go on to be so heavily influential, not just in comedy, but you're right. I, I, it's so much them understanding human nature. Yes. I guess works its way into everything they do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Elaine May was also a script doctor. Mm-hmm. I think she was called in and never even got credit, perhaps because it was right. too. Yeah, on um, you know, if somebody had a script that wasn't going well, they would call her in. I think it's been interesting to see her in some of these acting jobs she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, was it Law and Order or a movie in the last few years? Oh she, wow! Yeah, uh, yeah. Wait. Oh. I'm mind is a terrible too. thing to lose. It's just, you know, I can't remember all of these things. But anyway, she has done some acting work, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as has her daughter, Jeannie Berlin. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, good for her. She's she's still in the game. Yeah. I, um, I also love that one where the mother and son were uh, on, the, on the album, the Mike Nichols and Elaine May album, An Evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May where um it's a mother and son and and she's sort of that kind of mother where nothing is ever enough uh-huh. and the son is you know trying to really plead with his mother to stop going on and on about it and and finally at the end of the sketch she has turned and turned it turned him into a baby and he's he's actually using a little baby voice you know it uh, it was just just great because that she that kind of a mother does infantilize mm-hmm. a son or a daughter um anyway they were they were just brilliant I, I've always loved that because it hits on this one thing that, you know, while I might not have been around for, if you listen to enough comedy or watch enough comedy from a certain time, you become perfectly aware what's in the zeitgeist and what is funny. And the idea mm-hmm. of people openly talking about being anal- in analysis at the time was a yes. thing. And yes. like, this is like the most, uh, if not Freudian, definitely like psychology oh based, you know, and I just you- love that they've... <laughs> They just worked that out into a sketch. Very astute of you. That didn't even occur to me, but you're right. Going to a shrink uh-huh. was like so new and um, kind of weird and unaccepted and all right. sorts of things like that. Yeah, that was really, really great. But, you know, even the Sid Caesar comedy hour, uh-huh. that's another thing, you know, if, if you've got uh, time on your hands and just to, we have, um, my husband and I have, um, a collection of that Sid Caesar comedy hour and gosh, those sketches are so good. They're they, wonderful. They just, um, you know, there, there's so much good comedy now as well. My mm-hmm. golly, all of these standups. It's amazing. Uh, and I love to see that some of them are from Arab or Muslim countries and, mm-hmm. you know, people that, I don't know, uh, 25 years ago, would never, you, you never would have heard of a comedian from someplace that different. Right. Um, and they're immigrants' children, of course, who've adapted to America very easily and rapidly, and, and they come out saying, I want to be a stand-up. I just love it. Me, oh, me too. It's, it's, it's I think, going to, or at least, I, you know, I hope it's going to have this potential to reinvigorate comedy the way you know all so much early recorded comedy because that's what i'm mostly interested in Mm. so much of it was ethnic and it was meant to be reflective the most of the ethnic stuff was meant to be reflective rather than making fun of another ethnicity so the stuff where it was you know predominantly jewish people talking about their you know they were either first or second generation sometimes um, I I love what that did to comedy in a positive oh, way. Oh yes, oh sure, of course. Well, like everything, you know, you write about what you know. You, you do comedy about what you know or stereotypes. Um, yeah, for sure. Do you uh, on this album? So just for those who uh, you know, we've only discussed it a, f- a few times on the show, and I love getting everybody's different perspective on it. Uh, there's one sketch about it, one called Telephone, one called Adultery, one called Disc Jockey, and one called Mother and Son. And they're all, they play a few different characters in Adultery as well. Um, but 
I with telephone, I think it it has a similar kind of uh, a similar arc to mother and son, if only because he just sounds so much more beaten up by the end of it too. Uh, just in a different <laughs> way. It's just the, the whole, there's just this whole, I think I've stolen from him in turn, uh, you know, speaking, yes. stealing from stealing from the best. There's just so okay. much just like, listen, operator, I heard the dime, you know, hit all those other dimes. Like, I know that I've done that before. That was excellent. <laughs> that was a very excellent ripoff. Thank you. <laughs> But her doing the whole, that's K as in knife. Oh, my God. I just, yes! Oh, my gosh. Uh, that, that, that was perfect. Oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> so, something as ridiculous as, as that. Uh, yeah. It, it's, you know, I'm kind of shocked that there's only one, two, three, four. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, what was on the other side of the album? How right. Be- I know. Yeah. It's, it's only like 16 minutes aside on this one. I think that's was. Is there another side? No, that's it. That's it. I I double I double checked, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's very strange. It is strange, uh, but it also it's get in, get out. You give them what they want and and leave. I guess. Yes, I also thought that uh, adultery was resonant um, of Caesar mm-hmm. because he he and that crew uh, also did you know especially Sid Caesar was very good at making up languages without making any sense you know yes. just words that are nonsense syllables that sounded like french or italian or mm-hmm. german or whatever they were going for and i don't think anybody did that better than Sid caesar oh my gosh and he i guess he so he grew up in his father's deli at least that's the story he tells grew oh, up really? in his father's deli yeah and he was around he was in a part of new york that was so heavily just uh you know so many varieties of people from different countries where he would just sit there and like oh german okay cool oh polish cool let me just and he would listen and listen, oh, and listen. i yeah. didn't know that isn't that's that interesting very interesting yeah well he was proficient in terms oh, yeah. of doing it so that makes sense if he heard all these dialects around him. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, you, you, as you say, write what you know, perform what you know, you grow up around it. Like it's in yeah. your blood at some point. Yep. That's that, that, boy, that's, I didn't even think about that. That makes a lot of sense. Sure. Um, are we just talking about this album? We, we, I, I, I always like to talk about the album and then move into the, the person's oh, okay. comedy influences too. Cause I would, I would also like to talk about your influences and your life as well, a, an well, actor. Well, one of the other things on the album, and I thought it was interesting on disc jockey, that huh. cut, where you have a ditzy, what we now would call a Marilyn Monroe type, you know? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's very sexy and, whispers all her words and all of that thing. Now that prototype, I don't think exists very much anymore. I don't know that you could get away with that Mm -hmm. in this day and age. What do you think? That's hard to say. Uh, Yeah, I mean, if it was based on somebody specific, I think that's one of the reasons it works because it doesn't seem, or at least to me, at least in this case, isn't played as sexist. It's not played in the same way it, because they're both vapid, and I like that about it. You know, it doesn't seem to be uh, uneven-handed. Like, he is just an unrelenting self-promoter and name-dropper, and she is just a woman who's been thrown into yeah. a pool with sharks, and she does not get it. She is not right. quite sure where she is. Right. But that kind of character mm-hmm. where, which was quintessentially a blonde sure. also that was a very easy character to play mm-hmm. uh, back in the day and uh, I can't I can't say that I haven't played that character myself <laughs> um, because I find it funny but I don't think it would be very funny today I have a feeling that people you know women would object to that I, I, I can see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, uh, as as to what might be underneath that, yeah, you you're probably right. I, I you you probably right. Yeah, I think <clears throat> so, and it's it's too bad because it just it was a very clear type, mm-hmm. and people would picture or imagine exactly who that was. And I don't know. I I have a feeling you could not do that. You know, as a puppeteer, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I don't think so. I, I have a feeling that somebody on production side 
or you know our puppet captain or something would say uh is there any other voice you can think of <laughs> right right you know i i would love to know uh, what your history is with improv and I mean if you I, I don't know how prevalent it was at acting schools will you when you were you know coming up well I don't think we did a lot of improv no I remember a lot of history of theater and you know that sort of thing and mm -hmm. uh, doing plays British plays of the angry young writers at that time the John Osborne's you know people like that but I don't I don't remember that really. I, I don't remember taking improv per se. Okay. I just sort of learned on my own, I think, about the give and take uh, of improv. I know people take classes of it now and mm -hmm. did. Uh, and of course, if you did Second City and everything like that, I think it's a fabulous technique and to, to always say yes you know, to somebody throws out a line and you add to it, but in your mind you want to always agree as opposed to say no. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that's sort of the basic rule of, of improv. Um, boy, there are some people out there who just do that so so well. Um, but certainly as a puppeteer, it it was very useful. You know, we everything we did was scripted. But in a rehearsal or something, if you wanted to throw something out there, uh, you certainly were allowed to. And I would say, you you know, you kept it in if mm -hmm. it worked well. And um, certainly in takes, since uh, certainly when I was working with Frank and Jim, they would do endless takes. Mm -hmm. Endless. As the years went by and neither one of them really were... Uh, puppeteering anymore you just didn't get that opportunity to play around as much right. they would play around a lot and do many for instance Bert and Ernie takes many <laughs> many many and um, I'm sure Frank or Jim would come up with something different every once in a while and everybody would crack up um, but uh, yeah with the pace of television and production and trying not to run overtime, uh, you're not quite as free to to do improv. Right, right. I, you know, I, I have to say, I we're only in the public only privy to one or two bits and pieces of what you're talking about. And one of them, I think, is the camera test for the Muppet movie that are that are on the DVD and watching those two, not seeing uh, them, only seeing the puppets, but just seeing Kermit and Fozzie improvise kind of blows the mind a little bit and it's like yeah. you kind of yeah. get why they were such a team you, you know in terms of uh you know their abbott and costello uh absolutely boy. they were an abbott and costello of, of the present day or dean martin and jerry lewis or any of those those wonderful comedic duos um yeah. and it, it didn't matter which characters they were doing it's because of the chemistry between jim and frank yeah. And you look for that with other puppeteers, you know, yourself. What, what they had was very rare. It was, mm -hmm. they had really, they were very, very different people. Mm -hmm. and, and so that has nothing to do with it. It's just that when they hit the sound stage, the two of them together were hysterical and they loved cracking each other up. What? And they, they, they both could do it. I mean, Jim gave as good as he got. Uh -huh. I, I used to think that Frank was really the instigator all the time, but um, he and I have talked about that, and he said, no, really, really Jim would instigate a lot of the silliness. So, But I used to love doing the Prairie Dawn stuff with uh, Frank, either mm -hmm. as, you know, Monsterpiece Theater. There was a lot of bits we did. Now, this is back quite a few years now where he was Alistair Cookie. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was born in 80, so I was still seeing, you know, All original right. generation well, Muppets. Your listeners may not be familiar, but there was this, you know, it was the beginning of Masterpiece Theater, which mm -hmm. still exists on your PBS television station. But um, 
as with most of the parodies that the writers wrote, this was called Monsterpiece Theater. Mm -hmm. And Cookie Monster in an evening jacket and a pipe and slippers sat in a chair uh, as Alistair Cookie, which was a play on Alistair Cook, <laughs> who was a British, I don't know what he was, he wasn't really an actor, spokesperson. Um, and he would introduce all the Masterpiece Theater episodes back in the day and did it very well and um so they did a parody of that and then uh prairie dawn would somehow get in there and uh oh they did a thing on uh house on house house on the prairie mm -hmm. yeah and then there was a thing where prairie was on the roof of the house of the uh, on the prairie and <laughs> i just remember these crazy things but either during the take, or in between the date takes, Frank was just a devil, <laughs> a just, you know, a comedic devil, <laughs> just coming up with wonderful ad libs and things and trying to get Prairie Dawn irritated. <laughs> uh, yeah, her, her modus operandi has always been to stay the course, push through, and try to do what her objective was which is either sell the letter as i said before or mm -hmm. whatever finish doing without all these interruptions from cookie monster and the, the puppets work so well when you have that conflict between two characters what percentage of the time when you're doing something like that do you feel free to just go back to being fran uh, or how much of it are you staying in character for the sake of rehearsal or for your own brain i'm curious how that Oh, I think I tried to stay in character. I don't, I mean, if I had anything to say, I would say it as prairie, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, no, no. I mean, I would laugh, but I, I didn't get out of character. No, I don't think any of us really did. It's just so interesting because if you if someone comes to me and tells me a story about Daniel Day-Lewis um, staying in character all day, I am immediately bored. But when I hear people talk about uh, Muppets and 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 <laughs> and how much uh, staying in character you have to do, uh, right. I'm fascinated. It's but a total might, flip. Yeah, we would. I mean, we would add lib something. And sure. Still stay in character. Sure. Mm hmm. But uh, I, but that's so different, really. I. You know, I can understand having been an actress and playing a character and most of Daniel Day-Lewis's characters. And I think Meryl Streep does the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think she meets an actor at the beginning of the shoot and says, you know, hello, I'm Meryl Streep. And I love your work as an actress, but I'm just telling you that from now on, I'm not going to. I think she did that with Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada. Mm, okay. I'm pretty sure I heard that story. Because some people just aren't that comfortable in between takes going back to who they are, especially on a movie shoot. Mm -hmm. I would think that's very difficult. And, and it probably is much easier to stay in character. Uh, then have all these people running up to you going, you know, excuse me or whatever, or, hey, boy, on the way over here, I saw this crazy guy on the street, you know, <laughs> because people live their lives on the set. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing a, like a really hard-nosed character, mm -hmm. uh, as Meryl was doing, she probably said, I'm not going to goof around in between takes or anything like that. I'm going to stay in character. It's probably, you know, you know, and, and that makes sense. I just, I, you know, I guess it's just, it just because um, you and a million other folks have brought me so much joy. I'm just like, ah, you know what? They get a pass. They can do whatever they want. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think would that maybe say that's why. it's funnier to stay in character, but say something so outrageously out of character. Mm -hmm. That's what's funny. And I, I tried to get away with murder as Prairie Dawn uh -huh. because here she was supposed to be this little sweet person who, of course, because I guess I was playing her as the, you know, when, when they would write stuff or when I kind of returned to the show, she just got stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. um, but I said some terribly awful things as Prairie Dawn. I mean, naughty <laughs> things. You know, because it's funny coming out of the mouth of a little girl puppet. Of course. Uh, I'm just telling tales on myself here. I'm not going to say what I said. Of course, of course. That's what's funny, is it's so completely out of character for that <laughs> character to be saying it. 
And I love cracking people up, you know, if I could. I mean, to be able, what a joy to be able to not only do that, to have the freedom to do that on set, but also know at the same time, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, <laughs> I might be formulating the brains of a few million children right now. That's, oh. that's an interesting thing. Like, yeah, what's, but what's we never thought of that way. I still don't. I would never think about that. <laughs> never. And then, like, the writers would never told to write for kids. And they were, they were hired because they were comedy sketch writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when the show first first began, they the last thing they wanted it would be the kiss of death. Because over the years, I knew some people who wrote children's poetry and children's stories, and they would say, you know, is there some way I can submit some material to the producers of Sesame Street? And I would say, the last thing that you want to say is that you've written for children. Because that's not what they're looking for. They are looking for comedy sketches, period. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that, that back in the day, that's what made it so good, is that the writing was on two levels, one for the parent or caretaker and the other for the children. Yeah. And a lot of stuff went over the children's head, but the parents thought it was funny. I mean, it, it should be no surprise, like, how many of us then end up going into comedy or wanting to go into comedy. Or, you know, we learn, you learn stuff from what you see earliest. And, you know, uh, there's no doubt that I learned sketch comedy from uh, Sesame Street and then The Muppet Show. And then stuff with people in it, you know, but definitely For those sure. two, you know. Yeah, I think uh, I remember, and you won't, but there was a show... When I was a child, on the Joan Davis show, did you ever hear her? I haven't, no. I'm going to say, I don't know her backstory, I don't know what, but the the show was called I Married Joan. And she was a rather broad comedian. Uh, She was blonde, and she she was like, I I don't even know, I'm sure my parents didn't watch her, but somehow I discovered her as a child. And I think she was the first person in my life that, that made me even think about what is funny or this is a funny woman and why is she funny? And um, I think Jim Backus may have played her husband. Yeah, Jim Backus. I'm just looking that up. Okay. And then this has to be in the 50s, I'm guessing? Yeah, 52 to 55. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, I know she's passed away, but... She was a pretty, uh, you know, kind of a, not slapstick, but she was a broad comedian. And I think, I just remember going to school and trying to be like her. So there was something always in me trying to be funny, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I forgot to have that she was an influence on me back in the day. Isn't it interesting when we dig back and then we sort of realize, oh, wow, yeah, okay, I guess I guess that yeah. was a big part of who I was as a kid. Well, um, I remember the first show my parents let me watch on television was a comedy show. And um, it was, uh, oh, God, just that, that name just went out of my head. Um, the Red Skelton Show. Oh, wow, yes, of course. And... Um, I thought it was going to be scary because I got skeleton and skeleton <laughs> mixed up. So, um, but I, he also was, now he was really slapsticky. But yeah. again, this was, you know, when I was little and um, these were, you know, people, at least my parents must have thought they were funny because uh, he was funny because they're the ones that turned the TV on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've always always been attracted to funny people and I mean there was nothing better than I mean when you get Bill Beretta Dave Gulls and Frank Oz together they are lightning quick and I just laugh and laugh at them um, it's hard for me to jump in I'm kind of talking about Muppet guys talking now <laughs> but they they uh, it, it's hard because they can go to to areas that I, as a female, cannot do. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting balance, you know, just to, to to stay one of the. Well, this is a whole other conversation, but yeah, they can say stuff to each other, but they can't say it to me. Mm-hmm. It just would be wrong. 
But Bill Beretta is one, one crazy, funny man. I don't think I've ever laughed harder in my life. Oh, well, maybe when I saw Book of Mormon. Oh, my that, goodness. That that had me on the floor of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know, um, and, you know, the answer could be none, but did you grow up with any comedy albums in the house as a kid? Oh. No. Assuming you grew up on TV, maybe a little bit of radio. Ed Sullivan, of course. That's not a particularly funny show. Sure. Um, but no, I don't think anybody in my family was on the same. Uh, I think I was adopted. About me, I wasn't. <laughs> but I, I, I just was completely different than my. I have an older sister, and completely different from her. And um, though my sister is a great laugher. Mm -hmm. I mean, she she thinks I'm pretty funny most of the time. And when somebody thinks you're funny, you become funnier. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. I mean, you know, you give a comedian just the slightest applause and laughter, and then they just can rip and roar. Um, <laughs> I always start feeling less funny when somebody doesn't laugh, you sure. know, or uh, just doesn't respond. That's a horrible feeling. I believe that's called flop sweat when you're on a uh -huh. stage. <laughs> you, uh, you do, however, have, uh, and they're all, I believe they're all Sesame Street records, if I'm not mistaken, but I mean, you're on a ton. Oh, also the Muppet, oh my goodness, of course you're on that one. You're on the, the first Muppet Show album, too. I have a, uh, what do you call it, gold record here, right above oh. me in my, in my office. Yes, I have a few cuts on there, but the whole album uh is a is gold just like in the movies it's a gold record i love it oh my goodness it's the only one but oh sure i guess um yeah back in the day you know it was just a small group of us we there weren't that many puppeteers even mm -hmm. uh back when i started it was you know frank and jerry and carol and jim and uh me who did i forget wow. yeah five guys and abroad <laughs> uh, but it was great i mean can you imagine how fun that was for me to go to work oh my gosh no i can't it was it was just the best i mean here you know five extremely funny talented uh guys and um you know it was just wonderful watching them when i wasn't working it was it was great I mean, and at the same time, also, not just that, but keeping up and being, you know, as much a part of everything uh, is like, of course, nobody ever feels that way. They're like, oh, no, I, I was there. I was I was kind of along for the ride. I was watching everybody else. But then everybody else looks in and they're like, no, you were a huge chunk yeah, of it, too. You know, right, right. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean. But when, yeah, when you're in it, you don't even think about it. Um, no, it was a treat. I mean, those were the days and with John Stone there directing and, you know, this was just the best of the days. And I was lucky enough to be part of them. What was what was your experience with with puppets at all before this? Well, so I I never played with a puppet ever, not even as a child. I mean, I had dolls, but I never had a puppet. And um so when I came to New York and started making the rounds and the Broadway show that brought me there closed, uh, I would watch uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to make me feel better about myself. <laughs> and then I'd watch um, this first season of Sesame Street, uh, which would make me laugh. And uh, I saw this ad in, in one of the theatrical periodicals saying that Jim Henson was looking to train puppeteers for an upcoming Ed Sullivan Christmas special. Mm -hmm. And um, I just took away from that that, hey, maybe they just need some voices to, uh, to do some of these characters or maybe they'll have to see me because I might be good for doing some voices for animated characters at that point. I mean, it was just, you know, just a sort of an aside in my mind. I didn't really take it very seriously. But mm -hmm. when I met with uh, Jim and Frank, uh, after Jim had said, well, you know, that's okay that you've never played with a puppet. Just look, come on, we'll have a meeting, you know, whatever. So I went over to the offices, and there was a trunk 
full of puppets and a floor-to-ceiling mirror, and Jim and Frank Oz, of course. And, uh, you know, we chatted for a while. It was very easy and nothing, you know, nothing scary about it or nervous-making because, I, you know, I just didn't even – I just thought, okay, they want to hear my voices. And then um, Jim said, well, you know, just, uh, you know, just for the heck of it, just reach in there, pull out a puppet, and, you know, we'll, we'll do some scripts and stuff. So that's exactly what happened. I pulled out a puppet. I wish I could remember which one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it was this character that I ended up ended up doing on the Jim Henson Hour, um, but I'm not positive. She was dressed all in black. Anyway, so I did a voice, and then you know, I mean, I, I read the scene, and then Jim probably made a suggestion like you know what other kind of voice might you do? And I came up with some other voice and we had some scripts and we improvised with the characters and there was a lot of laughing and it just felt very easy. And, uh, you know, I, I just ended up leaving thinking, well, that was fun. (laughs) And then the next thing I know, um, I'm getting a call to do this two week workshop where they are training these wannabe puppeteers to puppeteer the Jim Henson way, which is with, you know, um, two, and we had to do it with two ping pong balls on our knuckles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just sort of learned to lip sync with records. That was really the main oh my thing. God, with I music. Love it. I love it. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there was quite a few of us. And after the first week, they let some people go. And Richard Hunch was also uh, in this workshop. Mm-hmm. And after the second week, Richard and I were promoted to actually being hired to do this Ed Sullivan Christmas show, and which starred Art Carney, by the way, as a good oh Santa Claus and a goodness. bad Santa Claus. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of learned just by doing this workshop, you know, the basic principles, you know, keeping your puppets straight up and down and making eye contact with the puppet's eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, when you do the puppeteering, at least on Sesame Street, it's backwards. So when you think your puppet is leaning right, it's actually leaning left. And uh-huh. it's, it's, it's a lot of hand-eye coordination. So then I did this Ed Sullivan Christmas special. And then when that was over, Jim asked Richard and I if we would do Sesame Street in the fall. Now, this is season two. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, oh, you know, I really, this was fun and a lark and all that sort of stuff. But really, I'm an actress and I want my face to be seen. And Jim said, well, you know, just, uh, he was very persuasive. He just said, well, just try it out. You know, it's not for that long a time. And let's, you know, just just try it out. So I I acquiesced, you know, <laughs> I mean, I said, fine, for one thing, it was a steady paycheck. And I was, you know, an actress struggling to, to find work at that point. Mm-hmm. So um, I did. So I uh, did the first season of Sesame Street. And uh, I guess it was during that season after a, f- a few months that Jim handed me this little pink puppet, uh, which became Prairie Dawn. And um that's where she came from. Uh, and so they wanted this sweet little girl, and she was the only little girl amongst all these boys like Bert and Ernie and Grover and Cookie Monster. And she would play the pageant. This was the little hook for her that Jeff Moss or somebody came up with back in the day. Um, she would put on these pageants, which were delightful and very funny with the guys. and. Uh, they would be costumed as an ear of corn or, you know, whatever, whatever the seasons, you know, they would be spring and winter and fall and summer. And uh, she never, ever learned to play the piano well. She still made terrible notes on the piano. Mm -hmm. And she would start all of these pageants by going, Oh, welcome, oh, welcome to our little play. (laughs) And um, that, that was kind of it. Uh, that was her main job the first <laughs> the first year, but gosh, we had fun doing those. Oh. I just loved it. Um, so that's how Prairie Dawn came about. 
You know, as a kid, I think growing up, you know, uh, people often and on this show and on other things often talk about, oh, how did you get into blah, blah, blah? Well, I saw this thing and it, I was like, maybe I could do that. That looks like something I could do. That looks approachable. And a lot of times those people go into said thing and are very good at it eventually. Um, while I, I, the latter part is not true, I still love doing it. Uh watching behind the scenes stuff of all the Henson stuff, which, you know, when I'm growing up in the nineties behind the scenes yeah. stuff was all the rage. So they're like, this is how puppets are made. This is how animatronics uh, yes. are made. And I'm like, Oh crap, I could do that. But knowing that there was a period also where it was still kind of gorilla and that it was yeah. kind of a little theater group. It makes me so happy to hear. It's just you, it's nice to know that these things come from something and also come from, you know, just a group of actors hanging out and screwing around a bit, right. you know? That's right. That's right. Or the writers getting an idea from something you do yes, on right. a particular day. And they, they say, oh, that's a good idea. Let's, let's have Prairie Dawn sitting on a hill reading some wildly inappropriate book for a six or seven-year-old to read, like War and Peace. I mean, you know, that that's what was so fun about the show is that, Everybody was clever, mm -hmm. you know. The scenic department was clever, and the purse, the prop maker was clever. And you know, I guess that was a prop that she right be reading this book called sure. War Peace. I mean, it was just this, you know, just crazy, silly, funny stuff. Sometimes just that amused us. I don't even know that the the audience watching the television could read what was on that book. Mm -hmm. But we had this wonderful prop guy at the time who made us all laugh hysterically. For instance, <clears throat> all the products in Cooper's store are made up names, but they're all very, very funny. Mm -hmm. uh, like the, a detergent or a dog food or a cereal. They just must have had a, a, a blast in the art department because mm -hmm we as performers would run in there and go look and see, was there something new on the shelves, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> it was all very fun. Very, oh. very fun. That's so good. I love that. I, I like that kind of world building that also gives you the freedom to be fun. Um, yes. You know, everything now is so serious. And so, Oh, I'm, I don't know. And we're afraid the children might not, you know, there's, it's very careful now. Mm -hmm. uh, we just tried to be funny and also get the educational thing in. Yeah. And now I feel it's gone away from being as much fun and mm -hmm. funny. It's, I think the, the children who are watching now are so young that parents feel comfortable putting their children at, you know, one year old is sitting in front of a television so the writing has gotten a little simplified, let's say. It's probably, I, I have to imagine it's also got to be a generation learning from a generation who learned from a generation. Because, well, you're dead right, Jason. Yes. Yes. Because there's this thing that, and I've noticed it in myself as a writer, when I've tried to write for children, I'm like, I'm writing, what I'm doing is a parody of a stereotype of children's writing. This is not good. So that's why I've stopped, you know, and I, I'm oh, like, yeah. I will go back when I've got a good idea and I'm not talking down to kids because that's the last thing I want to do. Well, but that's you, right. That's you know, right. You sort of like, oh, no, this is what this is, right? And then you go and you write it or you go in and you do a voice, you go in and you act and it's like, oh, no, I'm doing a thing based on a thing based on a thing. And right. that's take a step back and maybe you'll find it. Yeah. So, yeah. Sesame Street did it pretty well, but yeah. better to in invent something else. But right. it, it, it really was very important to all of the creative people that this show be fun and funny. Mm -hmm. uh, education, they felt, would just be slipped in the back door. You know, like the commercials were numbers and letters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a, it was a different time. But anyway, that's how I got involved with Sesame Street. You're also there for the first season of SNL because you you did a few performances oh my with the oh my goodness gracious yeah yeah what was that like but, well you know it just wasn't our best stuff you uh -huh. know because we we I think when the Sesame Street writers write projects for Sesame Street puppets they know what to do and yeah. they we were writing with. Uh, the SNL, I mean, we were performing to sketches that 
the SNL writers were working, and I don't think any of us thought they were really appropriate or didn't sure. play to the skills of the Muppets. Uh, and that's why they didn't stay on the show. It was just two very different ideas of, of what uh, what the Muppets were good at. That, that makes sense. I would imagine at some point there are probably people who are just like, oh, no, those are props. They just don't get it. They didn't get it. Yeah, perhaps so. Or they didn't. Uh, I mean, they may have liked Sesame Street, but I don't know. I don't know who came up with that concept, mm -hmm. but that was not a fun show to do. It mm -hmm. really wasn't. It was not lighthearted and silly. And Right. I think Jim and Frank were never you know, a hundred percent crazy about the script. So, you know, it was a nice idea, but it would, I don't know. I suppose it would be like throwing, uh, Mike Nichols in with God, I don't know. Hassan Minaj. I don't uh -huh, know. Just uh -huh. something, you know, it was apples and oranges. That's all. Sure. Yeah. No, that's, that's perfectly reasonable. I, I understand yeah. that. Um, if we, uh, I, <laughs> Uh, to go back to the album for a second, which, by the way, that whole performance, the stage performance, was directed by Arthur Penn, um, which is I find interesting. It's got you he, know. He, which, what did which, which one now? Uh, he, sorry, uh, yeah, an evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. The original stage oh. version was directed by Arthur Penn. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, it's a you know they, all of their shows, uh, you know, they've got such prestige attached to them, and then of course, obviously, Mike Nichols becomes the prestige director a couple generations yeah. later. Well, yeah, yeah. My goodness, that's interesting, Arthur Penn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. This uh, I don't know. This is one. So I've got a record wall in here in my office, and oh. there's only what are we talking about? 12, 13, 14, Only fourteen albums on here. Um, and that's one of them for sure. Uh, hmm. it just it's always been sitting there. I, I I love this album so much. I can never, you know, I, I can never quite nail it down why, but I, I think you did a, a pretty darn good job at the beginning, um, just talking about the you know the dichotomies of these characters. Do you have a favorite sketch on this on this record? Wow. Of the four, <laughs> the only four. Yeah, that are right, right. No. Okay. <laughs> Let me think back. I think disc jockey. No, wait a minute. Not disc jockey. I think, I think telephone. Yeah. I think telephone is probably my favorite. Do they have a lot of other albums? They have. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, and people are going to angry at me. I want to say three or four. Let's see. Oh no, is it just the three? See, this is what hurts my brain is because it's so in. My, so yeah, fifty eight. They had improvisations to music, which I'm less familiar with, but I have it. Uh, this one, which I've heard a million times and love it in 61. And then the next year, 62, they had uh, examined doctors and they're all, it's all just doctor based sketches. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Cause I should probably listen to some of them just for my own enjoyment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they were special, but boy, they paved the way for an awful lot of other comedy teams. They did. You know? Yeah. Uh, and then obviously, and then again, a huge, huge impact on the world of, of film and theater and, and everything. Yes. Else. Yes, indeed. I always well, there are a lot of people like that. You know, they start off in one area and <clears throat> all of a sudden they blossomed into some other area, but it's all connected. Yeah. You know, people would say to me, cause I've, you know, I've done some movies and I've done television and I've done yeah. the Muppets and I've done voiceovers and they, you know, they, say well what did what did you like best and i sort of feel like well you know they all informed each other mm -hmm. it's not like i'm working in a grocery store uh it, they're all part of the performing arts and i think uh what i do with my voice has helped me whatever uh, it, it, it they're all connected is what I'm saying. I, I think they're all connected. And I think writers can easily jump from one medium to another also. Mm -hmm. I think if you're a gifted writer, you're a gifted writer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, once once you learn to improvise, uh, the the line gets blurred, you know. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. and uh, writers and don't like many, to admit that. But Well, look how many comedians are excellent, serious actors. Uh, yeah. like Ray Romano. I mean, somebody could say to him, well, what do you like better to do comedy? Like everybody loves Raymond or play a serious role. Uh, what did I just see him in? Um, Bad Education with Hugh Jackman that was mm -hmm. on a streaming thing. And then he was also in the latest Martin Scorsese movie. 
Um, and I'll, you know, I, I bet you he can't say that he likes one better than the other. They're all very, they're different, mm -hmm. but you're still playing human beings, you know, who have wants, wishes, desires, families, allergies, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the more you know who your character is, the better you're going to be, the more yeah. specific you're going to be. Huh. That's, I mean, you know, what's funny is I normally at the end, I'm like, hey, why don't you tell me, uh, give me two sentences, uh, why this album is worth talking about. But uh, everything we've talked, we've kind of talked around it and we've already said it. Like, why yes. listen to this album? I think we've already talked about it because normally we don't delve into character concepts as much or the acting end of it. Ah, and I, I okay. love that that is your only approach and therefore that's all we've really talked about. And that's, okay. I don't know, it's a perfect argument for why to listen to this record and um, you know, and if, uh, if for no other reason, see if you can do an impression of these two, because holy cow, their voices, I love, I love his disc jockey too. I still think the telephone character, which is, you know, more just normal guy is again, probably my favorite too, but I do uh -huh. love his dumb disc jockey voice, which is yeah, so good. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Him just calling Ernest Hemingway, Papa, that's what we call him, Papa. Uh, just the <laughs> whole, oh, such a schmuck. I love him so much. <laughs> such a good. Oh. I know, I know. I would love to ask Mike Nichols who influenced him. I know, I know. I've, I will tell you, I, you know, while he was around, I tried, and I have. Elaine May has not done an interview famously since 1967, so I, right? I still, yeah, I still, I still try, but she still does stuff. But she's just like, I don't give a crap. I don't need to talk about my stuff. It's like, okay, I respect that. I'll still try well, every once in a while. One day she'll change your mind. I would keep trying. I think I will. You know, casually, you know, slowly here and there. If she heard such nice things said about her, I would right. think she would like to talk about her past a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I can't speak for other people. Of course. I mean, Maybe you know. she's writing a book, you know, oh that and doesn't want to be... give away too much or something. I wish she would write a book. How good would that book be? Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. Yeah, this this is a brilliant album, and it's always worth revisiting. It is one that I do not tire of. Uh, and, you know, there are a few albums we've talked about literally seven times on this show. And those, I'm even though they're the ones I grew up with the most, I kind of am growing weary of. This one, so far, no. no. Good, good. Yeah, it, it's so good. Um, so this uh, episode is going to come out. Uh, you take care. Hey, so... Uh, where can people find you online if you want them to? Is there anything coming up that we should keep our eye out for that you're in? Gosh, not really. I wish we'd done this earlier because we did, uh, we meaning the Muppet Guys talking group, uh, we did a fundraiser for a hospital in Elmhurst, Queens, just last weekend. But you can still donate there. Here, I'll tell you what. Um, tell people to go to... MuppetGuysTalking.com, mm -hmm. Muppet Guys Talking being one long word, uh, slash Jim. Okay. And um, I believe they might be able to see a replay of it. It yes. was a Zoom call. Yeah. We had about 10,000 people. I was one of them. Get on. Oh, you were? Oh, yes. my gosh. Did you? Then the site crashed. You know that. <laughs> yeah. And then there, there's a, a replay. I mean, there is a replay out there. Did you ever get to see it? Uh, you know, I, I watched the whole thing as it went, well, you know, once it came up. And I did get oh, an okay. email the other day saying, hey, by okay. the way, you can watch the replay here. And I'll find that link and make sure that gets included. So Yeah, that would be great. That's really what people have to go to, I think. Oh, good. Well, you're... you're certainly uh, knowledgeable about all things Muppets, I can tell. I, I, I wish I were more... I, can I tell you one thing I've been trying to do? So, it, it, well, while the when the world wasn't burning, um, was uh, try to get and speak to, um, and I apologize for not remembering her name, but the archivist, the Muppet archivist, because... Karen uh, Falk. Thank you. Uh, I've been trying, and I'm hoping, once things uh, straighten out, that that will happen, because... Yeah, oh, basically, yeah. I want to walk in a room and see how much felt can make me cry. Um, that's basically, I think, uh, my my goal. Well, also, you've got to go to the Jim Henson workshop. Ah, uh, believe me, believe which me, which is in Queens, dream. and you will see mm -hmm. uh, all of those wonderful, talented elves working away on this project or that project. It, it I don't know what's happening now. I assume I the office is closed. Right. Uh, we are we are speaking in the time of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, so I. 
boy, I'll bet she's working from home too. But she's she's a terrific gal, mm-hmm. and she, you know, it would be very valuable for her to talk to you and vice versa. I, yeah. I I'm I'm really looking forward to that at some point. Uh, I also will say, please, definitely, people, watch that stream. Um, there's one thing that comes up a lot, so I'm a really big fan of well, a few people, uh, but only two people that were lost in my lifetime, and uh, Phil Hartman and Jim Henson. And Phil Hartman was a god of uh. mine. And I have uh, since met a ton of his friends and I've kind of, you know, it's, it's this, it's a sideways way of meeting them. You know, you'll never get to meet yeah, them. Um, sure, and sure. this is, this is, I appreciate you being my, my sideways way of meeting Jim Henson um, because you were there for such an early yeah. point and oh, you're I'm such delighted. a huge part of it. But the, another big thing about that stream is whenever I ask people about Phil Hartman, you know, the first thing they say is, oh, so tragic. It's like, no, can we please not make that the first thing we talk about? And that was yeah. not, that's not the first thing with, with Jim Henson. You're like, oh, yes. All you guys talk about are your wonderful memories of Jim. And that's yeah. all that really stuck around. And I think uh, people owe it to people they care about <laughs> to, like, kind of make sure that their legacy is about what they did and gave us, not how they were lost. And I really, I thought that stream was beautiful because of that. Oh, I think that's great, Jason. Absolutely. And I also was a huge Phil Hartman fan. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh. Such a funny, funny guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, he was brilliant. Really brilliant. I, yeah. I miss him, too. Oh, my goodness. He was there's, in- there are tons of talented people out there, though. Yes. But it's anyway, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, really and truly. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so, so, so much. And thank you, oh. by the way, for doing Prairie Dawn for a second. Uh, it was very nice. I, I, I appreciate oh, that so much. Yeah. Hey, stay safe out there. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!